0: You can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. How good it is to be with you, church, to hear not only the, the worth of our God being sung together, but to come before seeking Him with humbled hearts and prayer. And uh, what a great prayer that we've just sung, asking that God will be faithful to speak just as He's promised to do so. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brett. I'm one of the elders here at Veritas Church. We're most glad that you've joined with us this morning, not only to participate in our corporate gathering, but to hear the gospel. And we pray that you're refreshed and renewed and knowing ultimately what we hold to and anchor our hope in is that Christ himself is sufficient for us in our sin and weakness. This morning, we're going to be considering a portion of Mark's gospel from Mark chapter 9. So would you go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, considering this portion of Uh, Scripture in verses 14 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, but you would need one, there should be one relatively close to you in one of the seats, one of the hardback Bibles there. You'll find this portion of Scripture on page 793 in Mark chapter 9. Let's hear God's Word together. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all around the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he said to them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when he'd enter the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you join with me in praying, asking that the Lord would help us as we consider this portion of text? Our God and Father, it's our great desire that our lives would be shaped and formed by your will for us as we've just sung prayerfully and humbly and in great faith, that you would speak to us. Lord, we're asking specifically that you would cause your word to direct our steps, that you would bless your word to shape the tone, the emphasis, and the pattern of our own lives and of this very church. Father, we're asking you to have your way among us that you might be glorified, we pray. Amen. Well, if you've ever picked up a biography of John Knox, you inevitably have come across his most famous prayer, Give me Scotland or I die. And upon hearing that prayer, or maybe hearing it for the first time, it should not be misunderstood or heard as some sort of arrogant demand before God, but more rightly, a passionate plea of a man who, if you know anything of his life, willing to suffer for the sake of the pure preaching of the gospel and the salvation of his countrymen. And as many of his biographies emphasize, Knox's greatness really lay in his humble dependence upon a sovereign God to save his people, revive a nation, and and reform his church. And what you find is that although Knox was often imprisoned and enslaved, and though he was often sick and under the threat of persecution, he constantly lived out his theology, believing that one man with God is always the majority. And during the time of the 16th century Scottish Reformation, Knox's ministry of preaching and of prayer were so well known that the Roman Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, is known to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. As we consider the good news of the Gospel of Mark that's given to us here, It's worth considering and reminding ourselves of these very themes of faith, prayer, and dependence. It's through these themes of faith and dependence and prayer that are woven throughout our Bibles, teaching us that God is often pleased to expose our weaknesses, our doubts, and our inabilities in order that we might trust His power his wisdom, and his faithfulness. So it's no surprise that these very themes occur here again in Mark chapter 9. These very same themes that the disciples are continuing to have to learn and relearn as they themselves follow Jesus. This section of Mark is a clear reminder to us that our theology, whether you're a Christian or not, you have a theology that our theology finds its truest expression in prayer. And that prayer is our reflection of our theology. Meaning, if you want to know what a man or a woman really believes, look to their prayers. Consider how these themes of dependence and prayer unfold in the narrative before us. We're going to look at the pain of defeat. We're going to notice the presence of doubt and wrestle with that. And then lastly, be reminded of the priority of dependence. Pain of defeat, the presence of doubt, the priority of defe- of dependence. Back in verse 14, we are painted a picture of defeat and the pain that it brings. As Mark tells us there in verse 13, that as Jesus descended from the mountain, they saw a great crowd. They immediately engage with the crowd. The father speaks up to tell Jesus and explain to him of this great condition of his son, the disciples' inability to cast it out. And now the scribes, the disciples, the whole crowd are arguing together over what exactly is going on. Like much of Mark's gospel, we're meant to feel these events as much as we are to read them. And there is a definite sense of of heaviness and overall defeat as you read these events. And this is felt even more when we keep it in line with the context of what just came before. Remember the first 13 verses of Mark that describe this mountaintop experience of Jesus there with Peter, James, and John. And we read of the glories of Moses and Elijah alongside of Jesus. The cloud descends upon the mountain. The Father himself speaks, Behold, my son, hear him. But the glory of this mountaintop experience, it's it's abruptly just broken up here with this gloomy shadows there in the valley below. And a major part of the heaviness that Mark describes is owed to the sense of defeat that runs throughout this narrative. Consider the boy's condition. Mark writes in such a way that we, the reader, are meant to grasp the total helplessness of this boy and the tragedy of the condition, because we're told something of his physical condition. Constant seizures. We learn later that he is both deaf and mute, unable to hear, unable to speak, We're told also of his spiritual condition, that he's possessed by an unclean spirit that throws him into these violent convulsions, often seeking to throw him into an open flame or a nearby body of water to destroy him. And we also learn that this has been happening not for a week or two or a month or a year, but since childhood that he's known nothing but defeat, knowing that at any moment his day could be turned into chaotic destruction as a result of this demonic presence. But consider the father's experience. There is no greater sense of helplessness or pain than in watching your child suffer. And for years, all this father could do was watch as the boy seized, constantly rescuing him from fire or water or some other damage. And to make matters worse, even if the father would try to hold his son and comfort him, words could not be heard because he's deaf. And if the son wanted to communicate to the father all that he was feeling, he could not, for he was mute. And so since the Boy's childhood, this father has known nothing but a sense of defeated pain, watching his son suffer at the hands of demonic power. Consider also the disciples' lack of power. In this moment, the very ones who should have been able to help could not. Their public humiliation is all the more stinging when we remember back in Mark 6. Mark 6, verse 7, that Jesus called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. The very fact that this father and this boy come to these disciples should equal good news. They have the authority of Christ to do the very thing that this boy needs and that this father is asking. But imagine the disappointment and the defeat that the disciples feel when they hear the dad's story, they see the boy, but they are unable to help as they are powerless to cast out this demon. Consider also Jesus' frustration. Even Jesus is subject to discouragement that's echoed in this text. He descends the mountain. Imagine seeing the whole scene there before him, the total chaos of the disciples surrounded by a great crowd of people. The scribes there, they're going at it, arguing over what's really happening here. The crowd comes running over to Jesus, meeting him there. The Father speaks up, he begins to explain the backstory and the whole situation, the disciples' inability to help, and then verse 19, he answered them, "O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is exasperated by unbelief. Echoing the lament of one of the prophets, Jesus cries out in frustration over the faithfulness of humanity. I believe the whole bit. The scribes, the disciples, the crowds, the Father, surrounded by faithlessness. We are meant to hear the heaviness of all of this defeat and the sense of futility as the very backdrop for what is about to happen so that we, as the readers, the hearer, understand that we too live in a fallen world that is so often marked by defeat, that is marked by the pain of the futility of the life that we live because of the curse of sin. That is the context in which Jesus descends into the valley. But there's also the presence of doubt. Alongside all of this defeat, there is the presence of doubt. Look again back at verse 20 in the father's interaction. They brought the boy to him, just as Jesus asked. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, within this description of the father's plea and the boy's condition, We are confronted with this reality that most of us know very well, and it's the reality of doubt. What place does doubt have within the Christian experience? What place does doubt have as we call ourselves, though, those who follow after Jesus? Can I seek Jesus and still have doubts? Well, in Mark 1, remember that there was another who struggled with doubt. It was a leper. And he came to Jesus. But what's interesting in Mark chapter 1 is that the the, the leper was uncertain over Jesus' willingness to help. But here, the father is wrestling not with Jesus' concern, but ultimately his ability. And in light of the disciples' failure... He's now looking at Jesus, their leader. Verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion. And how does Jesus respond to this question? Did you notice the reversal of intent? Look back at verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Notice what he does here. It's not the ability of Jesus, but the faith of the boy's father that is called to attention. Not my ability, but your belief is the matter of concern today. Now this raises a really interesting question as we read through the scriptures. What is the relationship between faith and Jesus' working? Does a lack of faith limit Christ's power? Certainly, we need to hold in our hands several truths at once if we're going to think rightly about this portion of Scripture. And what are the helpful truths that we need to hold in both of our hands if we're going to lay hold of Mark 9? Well, on one hand, we need to hold tightly to the reality, especially in Mark, that Jesus has shown that he works sovereignly with full authority over nature, over men, over women, over children, over demons. He has shown that he has the authority to forgive sins. He has the power to raise the dead, to calm the waters, to silence the winds. He is the one who walks on water. He feeds the multitudes with a few loaves of fish he has proven himself to have perfect authority over all of creation. Whether it wants his authority or not, he says, do, and it's done. So we hold that in our hand. Jesus has also shown a love for the presence of faith. Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your your sins are forgiven. Mark 5, 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Later in Mark chapter 10, verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. If we hold these two truths in our hands, what we can say is that it's not that Christ is somehow limited by faith or that faith is some mechanical need or aid that Jesus must have, but Christ has chosen faith would be the means by which he brings about his purposes. Or to say it succinctly, Faith in Jesus brings glory to Jesus. That is the means that God has chosen. And the way that Jesus responds to this concerned father, he places the spotlight, as it were, right on the faith of the man and essentially says, the real question here is that of your belief. Now, in saying all of that, we have to be very careful here to fill out our definition of faith and belief with the proper emphasis and shading that Scripture gives to us and not our own assumptions. The emphasis in Scripture is always the object of faith, not the faith itself. Biblical faith, the sort of faith that Jesus is calling for here, is not faith in a feeling. It's not Faith in your faith, it's not even the purity of your faith. The emphasis, again, is always, what is your faith in? That's what Christ is calling attention to. It's not, how zealous do you want this? How committed are you, Dad? Because if you had a little more zeal, your son would be healed. That's not the emphasis of what Christ is driving at it is most certainly, what is your faith in? Or as we would say, who is your faith in? If your faith is in me, well then what's the second clause? All things are possible. The emphasis is upon the object, not the purity. If your faith is in me, if that's who you're asking to heal your son, all things are possible because of who I am. All things are possible Not because of some inherent mystical power within your faith. All things are possible because of the object of which your faith is in. I am Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And upon hearing this, the Father responds with one of the most beloved and relatable answers in all of Scripture I believe. Help my unbelief. Can you relate to that? We are so meant to. Jesus, I believe. But if if I'm going to be honest here, my belief has a roommate and his name is unbelief. And as I look, they are both dwelling within my heart. Here is belief and here is unbelief. Help me deal with unbelief. What do we make of this? Is this man's faith sufficient? Well, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus heals him. We must hold that in our hands. Ironically, the father's admission of unbelief is actually a statement of faith. Do you notice that? When the father says, I believe, but help my unbelief, he's essentially saying, I have doubts, but I believe you're bigger than my unbelief. That's a statement of faith. By saying, help my unbelief, he's saying that Jesus is greater than his doubt and therefore able to provide him the help he needs. Doubt that is submitted to Jesus is actually a statement of faith. Because you are taking that doubt to the one whom you are trusting in and you are saying, help me. That is belief. Calling upon God for greater faith is trusting in Him rather than ourselves. And friends, that is faith. So when we hear this Father say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, that is an honest and helpful prayer. It is a prayer that recognizes the reality of our spiritual immaturity, that recognizes the effects of sin that darkens our mind and dulls our hearts, but recognizes that Christ is greater than darkened minds, dull hearts, and even the discouragement that comes from living in a fallen world. Help. Help my unbelief. So what we can say then, it's not the purity of our faith that matters, like how much purity do we need? Is it a simple majority, 51 over 50? Is it 75, a supermajority? Is it 85% faith in the remainder? Is it 95% faith and five? That's what's going to get it done. Friends, that's a sliding scale. How do you ever know that enough faith, the purity of faith, is what Christ requires? It's not the purity of faith. It is the object of our faith. This is why John Owen would say that a little faith gains a whole Christ. You may have a weak faith, but you have a strong Christ. We're not fixated then upon the zeal of our faith, but the presence of faith. The weakest true faith will do its work. Isn't that wonderful? Friend, if you are not a Christian, but you sit here this morning listening, hearing the teaching of the Bible, We need to emphasize this point so clearly before we move on. Faith is absolutely central to sound teaching and the application of Scripture. It is most certainly true that God demands perfect righteousness of you in all of your motives, in all of your character, in all of your actions. And the law of God is the standard by which he is judging. Anything less than perfection is sin. And that sin deserves judgment. But the gospel announces that the sort of righteousness that God demands, it is possible, but it's only possible through Christ's sacrificial death for sin, And so the call then to repent of sin and to believe in Christ, again, the emphasis is upon the necessity of your faith. Not faith that you'll do better, or faith that there's somebody who looks worse, so you'll stand apart in the end, or the faith that you really want to be better. It is faith in the person of Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith. The promise that Christ's death and that his resurrection is the only sufficient means by which we can be saved. So upon hearing that news, if you struggle right now to think that your sin could be forgiven, Mark 9 is good news. Because what it says is that you too can pray, I believe, but help my unbelief. Listen to Calvin commenting on this section. These two statements, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. But God forgives us and exercises such forbearance towards us as to reckon us believers on account of a small portion of, of faith, A weak faith gets you a strong Christ. It's not a question of, do you have doubt this morning? It is a question of, what are you doing with your doubt? That's what it really gets down to. And we would be wise to listen to the counsel of J.C. Ryle. What shall we do with our faith? We must use it. Weak, trembling, doubting, feeble as it may be, we must use it. We must not wait till it is great, perfect, and mighty, but like the man that is before us, turn it to account and hope that one day it will be more strong. Lord, he said, I believe. And what shall we do with our unbelief? We must resist it and pray against it. We must not allow it to keep us back from Christ. We must take it to Christ as we take all other sins and infirmities and cry to Him for deliverance. Like the man before us, we must cry, Lord, help mine unbelief. The pain of defeat, the presence of doubt. Let's consider lastly this priority of dependence. Look back again at the end of this portion, verse 28. And when he would entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, the concern of the disciples and the question that they bring to Jesus, it's most certainly valid. Remember, Jesus has given them authority to do the very thing they should have been able to do here. Authority that has been exercised in the past, but now they're failing. Lord, why could we not cast it out? Well, their failure was not a failure of technique. Their failure was not a failure of zeal or a lack of good intention. What does Jesus say? Boys, it was a failure to pray. And what is prayer? It's dependence upon God, not upon self at its most simple level. The whole expression of prayer is an admission that I do not possess what I need, but a recognition that my heavenly Father has abundantly more than I could ever ask or think. It is an expression of faith. Why could we not cast it out? Because you never possessed the power within yourselves to begin with. The authority is mine, not yours. You failed to look to that authority. Their public humiliation has been the necessary part of their continuing education in the principles of the kingdom of God. And friends, the great danger for the Christian life is that somehow over time, with a measure of success, you and I become convinced that we are less dependent upon God than we used to be. When I first came to faith, man, I really needed the Lord. But now, go ahead, finish that sentence. It doesn't add up, does it? We know that's a logical fallacy in our heads, but how often do we commit it? And this lack of dependence, it leads to self-sustaining labors. The things that we once used to pray for constantly and fervently become so familiar that this familiarity kills off any sense of dependence. Have you noticed prayerlessness settling into your life? Have you considered why? Don't just notice it and lament it. Because, friends, every single one of us in this room would raise their hand to say, who thinks they should pray more? That's easy. You know what's hard? To sit for a second before the word of God and ask for the Holy Spirit to teach you and convict you as to why that is. perhaps your experience, your familiarity that comes with time. We've been married for 20 years. I don't really pray for our marriage like I used to. Or parenting. Or evangelism. Or heading out to work. Or just throughout your daily routines. As we grow an experience that becomes familiar, and that familiarity deceptively convinces us that we're not as dependent as we once were. Perhaps it's your knowledge. I know the arguments. I know the answers. I know the reasons. Yeah, I read that book. No, I actually audited that class. Perhaps it's your trust in methods. Thank God for methods. Thank God for organizational structure. Thank God for planning, but methods and planning and structure will never produce the results that are actually needed in the end. And yet, how often do we trust in methods? Friends, we're Americans. We love pragmatism. We love utilitarianism. We love to look at methods and ask the question, does it work? Then let's go. Friends, the scriptures don't lead us down that path how desperately we need the Spirit of God to apply these warnings to our hearts. Because the disciples were not the only ones who've been given authority and been sent out in the name of Jesus. Do you remember the end of Matthew? The risen Christ, exalted, just prior to ascending, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That includes this age. That means that this charge given to the disciples has been placed into our hands. The authority of Christ, given to the people of Christ, with a specific commission to go in his name. The boy's father came with great need to the ones sent out in the authority of Christ, commissioned with his power, yet he found nothing. And what will the hurting and broken world find when they come to the church? We risk failing in our faithfulness to our mission to make disciples of all nations if we are not convinced of the priority of prayer and the dependence that is necessary upon this Christ. All of our talk, all of our books, all of our podcasts that speak of making disciples and all of our concern for missions is Empty, if it's not bound to this great expression of faith, dependence upon God in prayer. And we can look around and be greatly dismayed what we see in our homes, what we see across our breakfast table, what we see in our church, what we see in our country, amongst our friends. But do you hear Christ this morning? If you can All things are possible for one who believes. The most tangible expression of our belief will be seen in our habit of prayer. The pattern and the prescription of Scripture is the glad dependence of God's people, most expressly seen and expressed through their habit of prayer. You have faith in God? Show me your faith by your works. Translate, you have faith in God, let's pray. Have you noticed the very ones who exhibit great faith in God are the very same ones who prioritize prayer unto God? It's not a coincidence. They serve one another. Faith in God drives me to pray. And when I work through our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and I commit myself to him, I stand up, though the world may look entirely exactly the same, fueled and renewed in my faith because of the one that I've just looked to. Remember the example of King Jehoshaphat when he's told that this great multitude of Moabites and Ammonites is coming down against him from Edom. Do you remember his prayer? Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat was afraid... Set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came into the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Remember the testimony of the church in the book of Acts. Of course, we're most likely familiar with just the the description there in chapter 2, verse 42, that they were devoted to a number of things, one of them being to the prayers. And then what do we see throughout the testimony of Acts? We don't have to go far. Acts chapter 4, we read that the authorities and the elders in Jerusalem warn and charge Peter and John that they must not speak in the name of Jesus. Acts 4, 24, when they heard it, They panicked. No. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the same name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We come to Acts chapter 12 and we read of the increased persecution and violence against the church, and how do God's people respond there? About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church. Friends, this is the pattern of Scripture. Faith in God is expressed in prayer unto God. If you know anything of church history, you probably know something of William Carey. But do you know something of John Sutcliffe? Do you know something of the Northamptonshire Baptist Association? Suddenly a pond just got a little smaller. (laughs) A church of about a dozen, or an association of about a dozen or so churches, 80 to 150 or so members, that banded together for the purpose of missions, evangelism, training of pastors, Mutual edification. In 1784, there was a letter written by one of the pastors, John Sutcliffe, and it was a circular letter, meaning it was meant to be read throughout the churches in the particular association, and this particular letter was sent to other churches and other denominations throughout the region. Upon a motion being made to the ministers and messengers of the associate Baptist churches assembled at Nottingham, respecting meetings for prayer to bewail, the low state of religion, and earnestly implore a revival of our churches and of the general cause of our Redeemer, and for that end, to wrestle with God for the effusion of his Holy Spirit, which alone can produce the blessed effect, it was unanimously resolved to recommend to all our churches and congregations the spending of one hour in this important exercise, and for them, the first Monday in every calendar month. He goes on. The grand object of prayer is to be that the Holy Spirit may be poured down upon our ministers and churches, that sinners may be converted, the saints edified, the interest of religion revived, and the name of God glorified. And then he closes, who can tell? Who can tell what the consequences of such a united effort in prayer may be? Let us plead with God the many gracious promises of his word, which relate to the future success of his gospel. It's no surprise that from this same association of churches, marked by men like Andrew Fuller, Caleb Evans, John Ryland Jr., that they would band together to send William Carey to India. They were the rope holders that Carrie depended upon in order to bring the gospel to the heathen, to all the ends of the earth. And is it any wonder that the same group of believers committed themselves to prayer for the revival of the church and the spread of the gospel to all the nations? In a culture that we live in marked by Pragmatism, materialism, flushed with great wealth, prayer can easily become sidelined for more expedient methods. Friends, is it any wonder that for all of our wealth, for all of our programs, for all of our methods, that faith in God rarely rises above a murmured, if you can... How can we, as God's people, grow in faith-filled prayers that resemble the pattern that we see in Scripture? We just need to keep in mind what the Scripture teaches. We need to keep in mind, number one, that God has ordained prayer. It is the means for our aid and the means by which he accomplishes his will. Yes, he is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he's called us to pray. God's ordained prayer. We also keep in mind that the same God, he is omnipotent. He is unlimited in power, able to grant us his desires. It's not a question if it's probable. It's not really a question if it's even possible, for he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. We remember not only that he's unlimited in power, but that he is most certainly good. That he desires to give good gifts to his children. That we are not petitioning a stingy old man embittered by years of living. We petition a heavenly father who delights to give good gifts to his children. That he waits to be gracious to us. That he delights In mercy we come in prayer rejoicing in his goodness and we come in prayer fourthly remembering that he's faithful that he always keeps his promises that when we come to him asking and pleading with him along the very lines of what he's already promised to do we can pray in great confidence because we're praying in line with his character and so we pray What might Christ do through Veritas Church as we look to him in belief, prayerfully trusting in his ability and his mercy? Who can tell? Friends, faith is not expressed in subjective feelings. It's not simply bold planning, but most explicitly in in faithful praying. Dependence upon God is the mark of Christian living, and the greatest expression of dependence is going to be seen within our prayers. So may the Lord continue to grow us, shape in us, and enliven us to glorify himself through faith-filled prayers of his people. Father, we ask that you would most certainly accomplish your purposes according to your good, gracious, and perfect will. And Lord, we come as those who are learning even moment by moment of what we've just read. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Keep us from believing that it is the purity or zeal of our faith that somehow leverages what we need. Lord, anchor us in the goodness and the refreshing news that it is not the purity of our faith, but the object, you, the risen Jesus, that gives us great confidence to come and to petition, to come and to ask, to seek, and to knock. Lord, we pray that you would cause your word, as we prayed earlier, to shape not only our lives, and direct our steps, but that your word would give shape to the tone, the emphasis, and the very pattern of our church. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, let's remember that we do so. We eat and we drink by faith. Or else this makes zero sense. Honestly, have you ever thought about that? Each week, we set aside time to pass out bread and cup. We are very careful to say what it is and who it is for. We pray our prayers. We stand and sing and we leave. If this is not done in faith, then this is purely a memorial ritual that is ridiculous. We come to the table by faith. Not faith in a cup. Not faith in a piece of bread. But faith in the one to whom those signs cause us to look. We look to Christ. We look to His body, His blood. And that's why those who've gone before us have been very helpful in summarizing what the Scripture teaches by asking this very question, what is the Lord's Supper? Listen, this is question 102 of our catechism. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, according to His appointment, His death is shown forth. And worthy receivers are not after corporal and carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of His body and blood with all His benefits to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. We eat by faith to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace Seeing with our eyes this ordinance that says, Christ crucified, body broken, blood shed. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. For all the benefits that are afforded to us in Christ. That is why we make great pains each week to say who this is for. Because when we eat and we drink, we're saying, I participate in that. And that is why we say that this meal is a bond and a pledge of our communion with the Lord and with one another. When we eat and when we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death and we are saying, that is for me and I am nourished by that. And because of the reverence and the joy that is associated to that, that is why we say each week, if you are a member of this church, or you're visiting and you're a member of another church that preaches the same gospel, You've been baptized upon your profession of faith, meaning you've been affirmed by God's people, this meal is for you to eat and to drink to your spiritual nourishment. So, what we'll do is we've made practice, is we will pass out these elements as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive the bread and the cup. So you can remain seated for this song, and we will take time to pass out the bread and the cup. If you're not participating. If you're not taking them, just pass them to the person next to you in the row, and the men of the church will continue to distribute. Hold the bread, hold the cup, and as we prepare our hearts, let's sing Newton's hymn on page 12, considering the grace that is ours in Christ.